Well, thank you, musicians, for coming this past week and preparing yourselves and then coming early this morning to, to lead us in worship both in the first service and now. So appreciative of your ministry and uh, glad to sing with all of you this morning. I'm glad that you're here. They, uh, they predicted snow and it actually came this time and uh, lots of it. And uh, so glad that you made it, glad that you made it in, in this morning. And uh, I'm looking forward to leading you in the Word of God uh, this morning. Uh, my name is Pastor Mark, and uh, glad to be with you. Take out your Bibles and uh, turn back with me to Mark chapter 4. And I'm going to encourage you to do that, as I always do. Do it so that you might know what I have to say is actually driven by the text of Scripture. Uh, later this week, you'll care very little about what I have had to say, but you'll want to know what God has to say, and if this message directs you back into the Scripture, then it'll do what it's accomplished, or what it's uh, desiring to accomplish this morning. As you find your place, let me take just a moment to uh, thank the Lord for our time together and uh, ask His blessing on our time in His Word today. Heavenly Father, we are glad and delighted to be here this morning, and uh, we're grateful to sing praises to Your name and truth to one another and be blessed and encouraged by the ministry of music. And now with uh, the word open before us as we've just sung together, we pray that your word would shape and fashion us and do its work in the lives and hearts and minds of everyone who's gathered. Uh, Father, we thank you that your word is effective and powerful and will accomplish what it sets out to do. And we take great comfort from that and uh, are glad for it. So do your work in our midst this morning with uh, your spirit, by your spirit, with your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. As we get started this morning, I want to exercise your imaginations. Uh, imagine with me that uh, two, two friends have come together into an assembly like this one, and they're sitting in a crowd of people, and uh, they're sitting in a, in a place where God's Word is proclaimed, and the good news about God is preached. And at the conclusion of the message, where the Spirit of God has used the Word of God to reveal the Son of God as the means of mankind's reconciliation with God, at the conclusion of that message, uh, one of the friends responds, having been convicted of their sin and convinced that Jesus Christ is their only hope and Savior, and they respond by fleeing to God for refuge and placing their faith in Jesus Christ. And then the other friend sitting right next to him is quite careless about it all, as in he could actually care less. He's listened, but he doesn't get it. He's not really interested. He doesn't really want it. And he leaves unaffected by the message. How does it happen that way? How does that happen that way? We know that it does. Was the word of God ineffective? Was it something the preacher said or didn't say that fell on the one but didn't fall on the other? What made the difference in the response between the two friends? How does it happen like that? Well, imagine another similar scenario, a historic one, and this will take us into Mark chapter 4 a little bit. Imagine two individuals show up on the shores of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus is teaching and preaching the people, and such a crowd is gathered that Jesus gets into a boat and pushes out from the shore a little bit, and, and the, the crowds gather on the shore to listen to Jesus preach and to teach, and they hear this message from the same source, the lips of Jesus, and at the conclusion of the message, one of the friends gathered there he stands up and folds up his lawn chair and he says, you know, I thought I was coming to see and to hear the promised Messiah. I thought I was going to come and see and hear the, the, the promised rescuer, the deliverer, the one who's going to sit forever on David's throne, and all I saw and all I've heard was an unemployed carpenter who's not all that very impressive, clearly uneducated. He's sitting in a rickety little boat and he's telling silly stories 
about sowers and seeds and lamps and mustard seeds, and in the words of you two, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And the other friend sitting next to him says, no, 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 I believe he's the one. I believe this is the Messiah, the promised one we've all been waiting for, and I've placed all my faith and hope and trust in him. How does that happen? How does that take place like that? Do we have a good answer for that mystery? Uh, some of us around here like to get all philosophical and theological on this, and uh, we can argue from the Scripture that, uh, regarding the sovereignty of God and salvation. We know that everyone who is saved, meaning they're convicted of their personal sinfulness, convinced that Jesus Christ was sent by God to die on the cross for sin, rose again for salvation, they're convinced of their own sin, they're convinced that Jesus is their only hope and Savior, and they're saved unto God. Everyone who is saved is the recipient of an amazing miracle that God has brought about by himself. God saves people. In the words of Jonah, salvation is of the Lord. People don't save themselves. God powerfully and miraculously saves people unto himself through the power of the gospel, through the message of Jesus Christ. How do you know you're saved? How do I know that I'm saved? I know I'm not saved because I raised my hand and walked an aisle and parroted a prayer that some preacher gave. I didn't sign a decision card and throw my stick in the fire at the end of week of camp and sing Kumbaya when it's all done and then sign in the flyleaf of my Bible some date. No, I know I'm saved because God the Father has set his affection upon me. And he set his affection upon me by giving his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came in love to save the world. And God, by His Spirit, through His Word, revealed Jesus to me. And that revelation of Jesus Christ convicted me of my sin and convinced me of Jesus Christ. And because of God, because of who He is and what He has done through Jesus Christ, Jesus now has my faith and my confidence and my affection, something that wasn't there before, before God worked in my life. I know I'm saved, not because of something that I have done, but because God is a powerful, miracle-working God, and He has made me alive to what I was dead to before, namely, alive to Him, alive to Himself. Now, while we can argue from the Scripture God's sovereignty and salvation, we can also go back to those same passages of Scripture, and we can argue for mankind's responsibility to respond in faith to God and in Jesus Christ because of the clear revelation that God has given concerning himself and concerning his son in the world and in his word. God has clearly, unmistakably revealed himself. He's revealed himself in creation. All heavens declare the glory of God. God has revealed himself in creation, in the ordering of nature, in human conscience. God has burned it on the hard drive of our soul. There is a God and we are accountable and responsible to him. God has revealed himself in history. He's revealed himself in the written word. He's written, revealed himself in oral testimony. He's revealed himself most perfectly in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God has so revealed himself that there is no basis for unbelief due to a lack of evidence or a lack of revelation. The evidence, the evidence and the revelation is present, it's everywhere. The denier of it simply needs to suppress the truth that is present to remain the director of his or her life, which is what they really want to do. So as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, because God has so clearly revealed himself, mankind is without, ex without excuse. Their unbelief is un not justifiable. 
But now, with all of our finely tuned arguments, and we can go on that path for a long time, with all of our finely tuned arguments for God's sovereignty and salvation and mankind's responsibility toward God to respond in faith to the revelation that God has given, we are still perplexed, if we're honest with ourselves, we're still perplexed when two people hear the same gospel on the same day from the same preacher in the same room, and they respond in opposite directions. One responds with an affection for Jesus Christ and a love for him and a faith in him, and the other one's like, ah, whatever. I don't get it. Don't really want it. How does that happen? Uh, We like to think that Jesus, just as Jesus stood in the boat and commanded the wind and the waves and the sea, and and, and the wind stopped and the uh, the waves ceased and the sea became calm, we like to think that God's word is going to go out and it's going to fall on people and everyone's going to respond the same way. Everyone believes, and everyone obeys, and everyone falls in love with Jesus, but it doesn't happen that way. Why doesn't it happen that way? Shouldn't it happen that way? If God is sovereign, why doesn't he make it that way? That's quite a mystery, isn't it? You have a good answer for it? Uh, Some of us like to think we do when we start putting ourselves in God's seat and thinking we can unravel that mystery. Maybe Mark chapter 4 will help us out. In Mark chapter 4, you read it this past week. You would have read it in preparation for the Sunday morning sermon. Uh, Pastor Ian read it already in the service. But in Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells a parable concerning, uh, concerning a sower and soils. One sower, four different soil conditions. The path, the rocks, the weeds, and the good soil. Between the telling of the parable, which we're very familiar with, and the answer key that Jesus gives... Aren't you glad when you get an answer key? Jesus gives an answer key so that we can understand and interpret the the parable appropriately. But between the telling of the parable and the giving of the answer key, Jesus says to his disciples something that you would have read, I think it's verse 10 and 11, he said this, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now, undoubtedly, some of you, as you read this this past week, you're like, what's up with this? What's up with this? What's going on? This sounds like Jesus is going to begin speaking in mysteries and in secrets through parables where some are going to get it and some don't get it. What's up with this? What's Jesus up to? Doesn't he want everyone to know? Isn't that why he came? Doesn't he want everyone to be forgiven? Why is he going to begin speaking in these little parables, veiled truth and stories? Some get it, some don't get it. You know, when Jesus says this to his disciples, they may indeed see but not perceive, they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. He's quoting Isaiah 6. This last fall we did a sermon series in Isaiah. He's quoting Isaiah 6. Jesus doesn't use parables because he's a master teacher. And he knows how to use common truth to spin common common experiences into into truth stories. And he doesn't use parables uh, just because they're all walking by and he sees a guy out there planning and he he uses that as as an illustration. No, because it tells us he's sitting on a boat on water. He's not watching someone farm land. Jesus quotes Isaiah 6 because parables are a judgment toward those who have heard but haven't listened 
and they've already refused to believe, though the evidence is already there. Think about what we already know from Mark chapter 1, 2, and 3. Jesus has been clearly revealing who he is. He has been preaching the kingdom of God and declaring himself to be the king of God's kingdom. He has so clearly revealed himself as being God in his message, in his ministry, in his miracles. He has so clearly revealed who he is that the Pharisees have already rejected him and discredited him and called him a blasphemer, saying Jesus is discrediting God by claiming to be God. Jesus has made it abundantly clear who he is. The Pharisees have rejected him and denied him, and the crowds around Jesus are in that same condition. Some hear Jesus and they believe, some are curious and confused, others have already started to reject him. Jesus is now going to use parables, mysteries, secrets, veiled truth and stories. He's going to do it to sift people, to winnow people, and to separate them. Some are going to hear the parable and they're going to draw near to listen to lean in, to learn. Others are going to be like, what in the world is this crazy loon talking about? I had no interest in this. And they're going to walk away. Parables are going to have that effect. Parables are going to start making hard line of distinction. And for some people, it's going to be judgment. And for other people, it's going to be a blessing, like secrets being told and revelations being made. For the willful unbeliever, the truth that Jesus is now going to teach through parables is going to become more and more foggy, and the lights are going to go out on them. But for other people who have already heard from Jesus and begin to, to really lean into that, these people of faith, it's going to be like secrets being revealed, and the message of the kingdom of God going forward. And those who hear and receive, they're going to receive more. And those who hear but don't want to hear and they don't receive, even what they've been given is going to be taken away from them. So parables are going to do that. Well, that's enough. Let's move on to the parable itself. The parable that Jesus teaches, as we're very familiar with it, is a very simple story with a straightforward message. But even though it's a simple story and a straightforward message, we're still really grateful for the interpretation key that Jesus gives us so that we might understand it. Think with me, we're really familiar with this parable. Think with me about a modern farmer, a modern farmer today. We have farmers here in this congregation, Stockmeyer's farm, thousands of acres over in the thumb. Uh, think with me of a modern farmer, crop farmer, and he's got this big GPS-driven tractor and all sorts of hoppers loaded with seed, and they go out to the field to, to plant big acres of fields. And, and let's imagine this farmer loads all his hoppers with seeds, and he begins to drive down the road, three or four miles down the road to the, to the field he's going to plant. And uh, he doesn't know it, but there's uh, one of those hoppers has cracked, or maybe there's a little plug in the bottom that's come loose. And as he's driving down the road, seed's starting to fall out on the asphalt. How's that seed going to do? Now, I know I ask a lot of rhetorical questions, and you guys are like, I don't answer that guy anymore. But, but we know that the seed that's falling out of the hopper and falling on the asphalt, it's not going to do well. Because it's not intended to grow there. Now, some might fall in the cracks and grow up a little bit, but it's not, it's not going to make it. Uh, the farmer gets to the field. He, he, he hops out of the big planter to make sure everything's all right. He notices the crack or he notices the little, the little plug undone and he fixes it, but he notices he's lost some seed out on the asphalt. But then he plants the field. He plants that whole field. Let's say it doesn't rain for the next two years. How's that seed going to do? He's going to have to collect insurance because that, 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 that field isn't going to produce. 
Well, let's say he plants the field and it rains every day and night for the next 40 days and nights. How's that seed going to do? Oh, okay, you guys are tracking with this. Well, let's say that he plants the field and it gets the right amount of sun, it gets the right amount of rain, the right amount of fertilizer, right amount of weed control. How's that field going to do? Okay, in a few months, you're going to go out and be like, oh, that's a soybean field. Because you're going to see it. It will have been planted, it will have grown, and you'll recognize what kind of field it is. You'll be like, oh, that's a corn field. Oh, that's a wheat field. And then, of course, a few months later, there will be a harvest that the, that the farmer produces. So Jesus teaches a parable that's similar to that kind of story. Uh, you got a gardener or a farmer with a bag of seed, and he goes out and he's spreading it. And, and the sower goes out and he sows the seed, and some falls on the path, and some falls on the rocky soil, and some falls among the weeds, and some fell on the good soil. Well, how did it go? Well, we know how it goes. Oh, man, how did I jump so far ahead? How did that happen? Did I do that? John did that in the back. I'll accuse John. The seed on the path is snatched. It's like the seed that falls on the asphalt. The birds come and eat it. Field mice come and get it. Uh, The seed on the rocky soil is short-lived. It springs up quickly, but there's no real soil there. So it grows up really fast, but then it doesn't endure. It just gets scorched by the sun, and it's short-lived. The seed in the weeds is strangled out. Any of you plant a garden and leave it unattended? Some of us have had that experience of, of having this great ambition to have a great garden, and we plant the garden, but we don't do anything with it, and we know what happens. The weeds come up and choke out the plants. And then the seed that is planted in good soil, it succeeds. So Jesus tells this parable. And just like me telling about the farmer planting you know, on the asphalt and in the good field, you, you get it. This isn't like rocket science stuff, right? It's not hard to understand. But he tells this little story But the disciples and the crowds of people with the disciples, according to verse 10, they want to know the story behind the story. They've listened to it, and they know Jesus is teaching something, but they don't quite get it, and so they ask him. They know more is being taught. This is what parables do. The listening audience leans in, and they're blessed with the interpretation. In response to their question, Jesus gives them and us a day, today the, the key to understanding the parable. Jesus says, the sower sows the word. That's immediately helpful. <laughs> like, oh, got it. The sower sows the word. He spreads the message about the kingdom of God. He, he spreads the good news about God and what he's done through Jesus Christ. The seed, the word, falls on people. And the response is varied, depending on the condition of the soil, depending on the condition of their heart. According to the parable, uh, the, the word falls on some, this is according to Jesus in the interpretation key, the word falls on some, and Satan comes and snatches it away. We're like, whoa, this story's bigger than we thought. This is a cosmic story. There's a real enemy involved. Because the word is sown, and it falls on some, and Satan steals it. Maybe they'll have a chance to hear again. Maybe there'll be another opportunity. I don't know. It's beyond my job description and my pay grade. But the word fell on some people, Satan steals it. 
the word falls on others, and they initially receive it with joy and gladness. They're like, oh, this is the best word we've ever heard, and they, they receive it, but they endure for just a short while because tribulation and persecution comes for identifying with Jesus, and it causes them to fall away. The word is sown, but it doesn't take root, therefore it doesn't mature, it doesn't produce. The word falls on others, and, and the worries of this world, and the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things come in and choke out the word like weeds do in a garden. So just like the rocky soil, the weedy soil doesn't produce. Finally, Jesus says, the word falls on people who hear it, and they accept it, and they receive it, and they bear fruit, they grow up, they mature, and they reproduce, and just like a corn plant, everyone knows what it is, because they can see it, what's planted doesn't even compare with what grows from what's planted. Now, now this is important. Uh, the message that of the parable of this, uh, the sower and the sower, the sower and the seeds, it, it doesn't end when Jesus gives the end of the interpretation. It continues, and it continues in, 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 the, in the continuation of chapter four, when Jesus starts talking about a lamp and seed and mustard seed and plants. And it looks like there's three additional parables here, but it's just the continuation of the same message of the first parable. And here's the message from the parable with the whole chapter in mind. The word of God goes out by people who spread the word. Man, who would have thought God would do it that way? That he would entrust the treasure of the truth to clay pots, like you and me. We would think God would write it in the sky, that he would, he would do it some majestic way. But no, the word of God is spread by people. And the word which is spread by people produces a response in people. And we don't know how it works. We know it just does. And it does it all by itself, quite mysteriously, quite miraculously. The word is powerful. Remember when you were a kid in grade school? This happened to me, third or fourth grade. You went into grade school on one day, and the teacher had a bunch of styrofoam cups with soil in it, and everyone got a bean, and you stuck a bean in the, in, in the soil, and you came back the next day, and you're like, huh, oh, nothing there. Came back the next day, huh, huh, whoa, something's growing. How did that happen? Well, I did it. No, we don't know how that happened. It just started to grow. It was like miraculous. So people spread the word. They've been committed to do it. And the word goes forward by people and it produces a response in people. We don't know how it works, but we know it does. And it produces effect because the word is powerful. The sowers aren't all that significant. Sorry to all you farmers out there who plant big fields. The sowing is important. The sowing must be done but it's the word that is powerful. It's the word that produces. Those who receive the word are going to receive more. Those who reject the word, even what they've been given is going to be taken away. So here we go. Let's go forward with our message. Uh, the seed that doesn't produce, and there were three soils in which the seed didn't produce. The path, the weeds, the rocks. The seed that doesn't produce isn't harvested. You know, that, that almost goes without saying, right? It's kind of like a, you know, you don't need to say that. <laughs> the seed that doesn't produce, it isn't harvested because there's nothing there to harvest. 
Farmers don't harvest asphalt roads where they spilt seeds on it because plants don't grow there. And farmers don't harvest in the rock pile. And farmers don't harvest from the weed patch because nothing is produced there. The conditions weren't right for the seed to die and resurrect and grow and reproduce and mature. So the seed that doesn't produce, it isn't harvested. The seed that produces is visible. You can tell what it is. It's like a lamp on a lampstand. That's, that's what Jesus says. Uh, the seed that is, that, that, is, that is planted, when it grows, everyone goes out and like, oh, it, it's manifested, it's known. We, we don't go out in the fall and we go uh, buy a soybean field and stop the car and we get out and we look at the soybean field and we're like, I wonder what they planted there. I wonder if they put corn in that field. No, we know soybeans were planted because that's, what, that's what's grown. It's like a lampstand. A seed that produces is visible. Seed that produces is fruitful. It's like a head of grain. One small corn kernel becomes a plant with all sorts of corn kernels because there's ears of corn on that plant. So it's fruitful. It reproduces and it does it miraculously all by itself. And the seed that produces is visible, it's fruitful, and it's a blessing. It provides refreshment. There's a harvest there. And people feed on it. And of course, even in Jesus' parable, the birds of the air come and rest on it. So the seed that produces results in a harvest of blessing. Okay, so that's the parable. But stay with me, because the chapter isn't over. Following the parable and the message of the parable, Mark tells the reader of this encounter that the disciples have with Jesus in a storm in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, we're very familiar with this text and very familiar with this encounter, and I don't think Mark accidentally put it there. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he put us here on purpose. But we're, we're familiar with this little paragraph where after the day of teaching, Jesus has been teaching in a little boat. There's people on the shore. They've been hearing his parables. Some are leaning in and responding. Others are walking away and in, in disenfranchised with Jesus. But at the end of the day, Jesus says, hey, disciples, let's pull up anchor. Let's go to the other side of the sea. And so they take off across the sea. It's evening time. A storm sweeps in. And it's a big storm. The disciples, some of whom were fishermen, are scared to death. Uh, the boat's being swamped. They wake up Jesus. I wonder what they thought Jesus was going to do. But they wake Jesus up and like, hey, do something here. And Jesus gets up and he speaks. And the wind stops. Well, that's miraculous. Maybe it's coincidental. Maybe the storm was going to stop right then. So Jesus gets up. And he speaks to the wind, and the wind stops. Huh. But the scripture says, the waves stopped, and the sea became like glass. We know when storms are over, waves just keep coming into the shore for the next few days. That's how it works. But Jesus stands in the boat, and he commands the wind, and the waves, and the storm, and the wind stops, and the, the storm ceases, and the, ski, the sea becomes like glass. And the disciples are like, whoa, terrified. Who is this? Well, he's been telling them who he is. I don't think it's accidental that Mark adds this story right at this point in his text. Immediately following the sower and the seed and the lamp and the mustard seed, these things go together. Jesus speaks, and the storm stops, and the sea grows calm. And yet God's word falls on people 
And the response isn't uniform, it's varied. Some receive him, some reject him. And we go, huh, who would have thought that? Jesus speaks and nature obeys him. The wind stops, the storm ceases, the waves become like glass. Jesus speaks and people respond to him, some favorably, some not favorably. That's, that's absolutely fascinating. Uh, incredible. Who would have thought it would be like this? That ought to, uh, why aren't people like wind and waves? Jesus speaks, and some people respond favorably, and they treasure Jesus as Lord and Savior, and others have no interest, or at least no endurance, because there's no produce. <laughs> and in the harvest, they're passed over because there's nothing there to harvest. That's quite a mystery. We ought to stand back and wonder, and in awe, and in worship. What a mystery. Uh, we know from this passage that God's word is infinitely powerful, able to stop storms. We also know that God's word falls on people and it produces a definite outcome. It doesn't do nothing. And we think sometimes it does. Two people come into a service, they hear the preaching of the word of God, one responds, says that Jesus is the way, the other one's like, ah, whatever, and we think, oh, the word did something there, it didn't do something there. No, it did something. Something very definite, something very definitive. God's word doesn't return void. God's word is living, active, powerful, and it produces a real outcome every time. That's remarkable. God's word convicts and it converts and it condemns. It blesses, and it judges. It doesn't do nothing. It brings about seeing and hearing and life, and it produces deafness and blindness and darkness on those who willingly and willfully reject the truth that they have been given in order to remain in unbelief because they just desire to go their own way. So, you know, we can, we can take this passage, and I know some people take the passage of the parable, and they, they really want to use it to judge the produce of other people. And maybe we can do that. I don't know if that's the point. I think the real point is, what has God's Word done in you? And what has God's Word done in me? The Word matters. And my response matters. If, through the preaching of the Word of God where the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and reveals the Son of God as mankind's hope and Savior, if you have heard that Word and you have been convicted of your own sinfulness and consequent separation from God, and you have been convinced that Jesus is your hope and Savior and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you've been made alive to God, you ought to be immeasurably grateful because God has done a miracle in your life, making your blind eyes see and your deaf ears hear and to give you the vision of Jesus Christ who is God's provision for your salvation. So if you've heard the message from the word given by the spirit of God, sown by a person, and it's fallen on you and it has produced a response of faith and affection for Jesus Christ, you ought to be like, woo, eternally grateful because God has done a miracle in your life. You didn't do it on your own. You can conjure that up in your heart. You don't have that power. So you ought to praise God for his infinite kindness and grace to you. 
If you are indifferent to Jesus, indifferent to God's word, unaffected by it, seemingly unchanged by it, then according to this passage, you are in the path of grave danger, of infinite eternal peril. And your only hope is to go to the one you are indifferent to, to Jesus himself, and to ask him to change the condition of your heart which has been unaffected by his revelation of his goodness and grace and mercy. Jesus is your only eternal hope. You're not going to change your own heart. You're not going to look inside yourself and find something there that you can fan into flame and, and turn on some affections. No, no, God does that, and he does it through his word and through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if the word of God is like nothing to you and your affections for Jesus are, are at zero, your only hope is to go to the one that you're indifferent to. Seek him. Go to him. The promise of Hebrews chapter 11 is God reveals himself to those who earnestly seek him. Wow, that's good news. And according to Jesus in John chapter 6, God doesn't refuse anyone who comes to him through Jesus Christ. So if you've been unchanged by the good news and seemingly unaffected by the gospel, then God is your only hope. And I would encourage you this morning to go to him. You don't have it in yourself to change yourself. You don't have that kind of power, but God does. And God's word does. And you need to go to him. So Mark chapter 4. Very familiar. Parable of the sowers, the sower and the seed. And this parable is said in the context of blessing to the disciples and to those who hear and to those who listen and those who, who lean in and say, Jesus explained to us that teaching. So it's a blessing to them, but it's also a judgment. And Jesus is saying, yeah, my word's going to go out. It's now in mysteries and veiled truth because we're going to start winnowing people. We're going to start sifting people. And so it's judgment on those who reject. We know today, we know in Jesus' day, some hear and receive and receive more, and some hear and reject and deny, and even what they have been given has taken away. It's a, it's a real warning. So the blessing and the warning of Mark chapter 4, it, it's here, and it's for everyone. And God's word goes forward today, and no one is untouched by it. God's word works every time because God's word is powerful and it produces a definite result. That's completely awesome. Completely awesome. I'm going to give you just a moment to spend some time in prayer. I would encourage you to respond to God. Take a moment to ask him to reveal the condition of your own heart and soul. Express to him the desires of your heart and be still before him. Allow him to minister his grace to you in ways which are needed and immeasurable. So let me, let me give you a minute to do that. Let's close our eyes in prayer, and you can speak to the Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ, and then I'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, every Sunday we gather here as a people gathered together, and we open your word, and we read it, and you minister grace to us, and we thank you for it. We thank you that your word is living, active, effective, powerful. It doesn't return void. It produces. Father, I, I, I thank you for those here who have heard, even before this morning, the message concerning Jesus Christ as hope for salvation. 
the one who died, the one who rose again, the one who ascended on high, the one who is returning as King of kings and Lord of lords. I thank you for those who have heard about Jesus Christ and have been convicted of their separation from you and sinfulness and have become convinced that Jesus is their hope and Savior and have placed their faith in Jesus. I thank you for them. I thank you for your work in their life. I pray for those today who are here. I pray that your word would do its work in their lives. Those who have not responded to Jesus Christ, I pray that they would become well aware that there is no other salvation given among men whereby we must be saved. But there is a salvation, and it's found in Jesus Christ. And I pray that today would be the day when that conviction strikes and that confidence comes that you give, that Jesus is their hope and people flee to you through Jesus for salvation. Do that work. You will do that work in our lives, and we're, we're grateful for it. Father, I pray that you would continue to make us diligent students of your word, that the light we have received will keep leaning in, learning more, and receive more as we grow up and mature and as you conform us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. You'll produce a harvest in us. You'll produce, you'll produce in us what we think is quite miraculous. You'll accomplish things in us that we would have never done on our own. You've made us alive to yourself, and we're grateful for it. Father, we love you. We love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.